Good morning, and the conversation continues here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio as we ease on into WIP Sunday. It's going to be in the 70s, but it's going to be humid, and it's probably going to rain. So no matter where you go, take 94 WIP with you. Always good conversation. And good conversation is what we're going to have right away with my next guest, Corey Albertson. Corey is the author of a new book, A Perfect Union, Question Mark, Television and the Winning of Same-Sex Marriage. Good morning, Corey Albertson. Good morning, Peter. It's such a pleasure to be on your show. It's a pleasure to have you as well. Why the question mark in your title? Well, that's a great question to start with. Uh, and, and the reason that I wanted to do the question mark is because I really wanted to explore, is it a perfect union or is it not? Uh, this this marriage that I say exists between television and same-sex marriage and between uh, television and winning over people's attitudes uh, to be in favor of same-sex marriage because we sort of look at it, I think, as this uh, perfect marriage, as this perfect relationship between those two spheres. Uh, but I wanted to explore and really delve deeper and to see if it was perfect or not, and what I found was the latter. Okay. How far back can you go in television history to find the first indication we were moving in that direction? Oh, well, uh, the LGBTQ community started to appear on uh, television in the form of mostly gay men uh, and and some lesbians back in the 80s, and and we were – supporting characters then, and and typically characters that were attached to um, the HIV-AIDS crisis that that was um, sort of burgeoning uh, at that point. And uh, so we were attached to that, but we were never leading leading players. We were never – we never sort of held our own in terms of, of, you know, we were on one one episode or two uh, at the most. And so that's when you started to see the beginning of LGBTQ depictions again, in the form of gay men and lesbians, but then really this started to change in the 1990s, and that really worked alongside to the the push for same-sex marriage because that started in the 1990s uh, with Hawaii being sort of the first state that really sort of got it on the national radar and really sort of ignited that debate. And so you really saw a parallel uh, sort of representations of of gay and lesbian folks alongside our discussions of same-sex marriage. So it was going at the same time. Well, I remember a TV show called Love, Sydney. Tony Randall played a gay man who might as well have been gender neutral mm-hmm. for as much gay activity as he had on the show. Mm-hmm. Did that help or hurt? Well, so, you know, a lot of the depictions that we had uh, really in the in the 70s, if, if you want to look at the 70s and then also in the 80s, when you had sort of what I would call sort of queer characters that were not explicitly defined or they were sort of, uh, bucking uh, gender norms. Um, I'm thinking about the show, you know, where Tom Hanks was got his start, you know, where he was sort of wearing, he was in drag, right, uh, throughout the show. And, you know, you had sort of these depictions that were disrupting, uh, uh, you know, norms and gender norms especially and sort of, you know, allowed for some queerness to sort of seep in, but they were never addressed head on. They were usually done I think, as you mentioned, for comedic purposes, uh, they were never uh, looked at as as, as being serious. Uh, and so that in itself was actually important. Having said that, though, just the fact that you were having that disruption, this the fact that you could see that disruption uh, was important still in itself. 
Well, it goes back even further, though, doesn't it, to Milton Berle? Absolutely. And I remember Flip Wilson and Geraldine Jones. The devil made me do it. Absolutely. And so that was always sort of a source of comedy and a way for uh, really straight folks to actually play with gender. Um, but again, it always had to be done through sort of the sort of the lens of comedy. Um, and, you know, as long as you're making people laugh about, you know, sort of disrupting gender, uh, then it was okay. But at the time, that was all that we could do and all that we could expect. And, and so even in the portrayal, it was, you know, it was it was powerful in that queers at the time could actually view that and sort of see some disruption in it, whereas the straight folks were mostly looking at it as in, as in terms of comedy. And so you were sort of speaking to both of those groups. When did it get a little more serious and a little more real? So I think, again, I think uh, the 80s uh, was really when we started to see the change. You started to see gay men and lesbians being depicted. Again, though, it was either connected to – it was always connected to struggle. And that's where you started to see them either on comedy shows or uh, in, in dramas and, and especially like soap operas like the primetime soap operas that were very popular in the 80s. And so it was very much connected to, again, struggle, and, and that struggle either in the form of struggling with HIV and AIDS or struggling with coming out and your identity. And so those were the two spheres that the gay men and lesbians were really sort of centered around. So it wasn't centered around, you know, happiness or having a loving relationship or having a family or, you know, being powerful and enough to disrupt those uh, institutions if you didn't want to participate in, in marriage and, and, and family. Uh, and so it was really connected to death and uh, struggle. And so uh, that's when it started to be taken seriously. But in the flip side of that was that it sort of cemented uh, the narrative of LGBTQ folks within those sort of unhappy, struggling uh, spheres that really persisted uh, through to the 2000s. Well, but was not only straight writers, wasn't it gay writers who perpetrated that myth? You absolutely did. And and, and I will, uh, you know, caution to say it wasn't necessarily a myth, so to speak, because we were struggling at that point. We were struggling to be seen. We were struggling with HIV and AIDS. We were str struggling with all of the rhetoric around HIV and AIDS, basically, you know, uh, viewing uh, gay men especially as 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 carriers of these disease and that it was somehow their fault and, uh, you know, viewing them, you know, many people in the Christian tradition viewed them literally as the devil because of, you know, all this rhetoric and the connections that were being made uh, through all of this. And so, um, so it was, it was a mixture of both. And so you did have uh, gay writers who were also um, trying to get these stories out and get these stories out in a very human and also humane way that, to say, look, you know, uh, people that are struggling with this with this disease, uh, it is not their fault. Hmm. An example. Do you have an example on TV? So there were actually a lot. The first two that come to mind for me uh, for those two uh, spheres, uh, and this is, again, in the realm of comedy, I'm thinking about uh, – the show The Golden Girls, and I'm thinking about the show Designing Women. Both of them dealt with uh, uh, gayness in, in their own way. The Golden Girls had uh, one of the central characters' brother came, uh, you know, came on the show and, and uh, was basically outed to his sister, and, uh, you know, and she struggled with that. And so it was about watching her uh, struggle with this narrative of, oh, my goodness, my brother is gay. Then on the other side, you had a character on Designing Women – who uh, was HIV positive, and you saw the women on that show sort of stand up for him, 
against folks who were bigoted against him because he was carrying this disease. And so you had sort of these two shows that really exemplified sort of the only two narratives that we were experiencing at that time in terms of representation. Absolutely. Both were wonderful shows in their time. They were. They were. I recently been been binge-watching old reruns of Cagney and Lacey, a TV show, and they just had an episode that I binge-watched of a baby with AIDS in a daycare center. Yeah, and, you know, Cagney and Lacey was an interesting show just in itself, aside from that storyline, which was incredibly important to sort of broaden out the – the idea that, you know, HIV was not just affecting gay men, that it was really, you know, it was affecting everybody, including babies, as you say. But Cagney Lacey itself was sort of an important show in that a lot of uh, queer folks looked at Cagney and Lacey and saw this homosocial relationship between two women who were in these traditionally masculine spheres, and they saw a lot of themselves in that show. And so even though, you know, they didn't uh, sort of say, look, Cagney and Lacey are, are gay or lesbian, a lot of queers read that as sort of the first inklings of, of powerful um, queer women. Moving on, what about Will and Grace? <laughs> Will and Grace. Will and Grace is so important because what happened was during that period you had you had the Ellen moment right before Will and Grace where, you know, Ellen came out and became the first – a woman or first person to uh, sort of head their own, a first gay person to head their own television show and come out on the air like that. And then you had Will and Grace, but both of those dealt with and focused on identity. Uh, both of those characters, Ellen and Will, and also if you want to extend it to his you know, comrade Jack in the show, uh, all three of them were chronically single, right? They were always struggling to, to get a boyfriend or to get a girlfriend. And so that's where we were in the 90s. We had moved away from HIV and the coming out narrative as the struggle, and we had moved to, okay, now we want to be in a relationship, but, oh, we're going to struggle with this, and we're going to be chronically single. And so you never really saw them being depicted within uh, gay relationships. It was really sort of more so about their relationships to straight people and also their uh, their their desire to sort of want to be in a relationship but always sort of falling short. Hmm. So obviously they were helpful then. They were helpful. And, you know, there's a famous study that was done uh, for Will and Grace where uh, uh, 250 college students were exposed to them. I think this was back in 2006. And and they, they made these 250 college students watch Will and Grace. And what they discovered was that Will and Grace – lowered the levels of sexual prejudice among straight folks, and it lowered the numbers of sexual prejudice among those who had the least amount of contact with gay men and lesbians. And so Will and Grace was incredibly important, but this also goes to show how just these representations in general of gay men and of lesbians are not just important for representation. They actually do change attitudes. And then jumping into today, or close to today, I'm thinking of two shows. I'm thinking of Desperate Housewives with the gay couple next door Mm -hmm. and um, Modern Family. Yes, and and so once we move from Will and Grace, we start to move from this – hey, I'm coming out, or hey, this is my identity, or hey, you know, the hey, I'm gay narrative uh, to the just like us narrative. And this is where you see Desperate Housewives, you see Modern Family, you see Glee, you see Grey's Anatomy as well, Uh, The Good Wife. These are all shows that I look 
look at in my book, A Perfect Union. And what they are really trying to get the public that is watching them to see is that, hey, we want to be in relationships just like you. Hey, we want to have families just like you. Uh, hey, we love just like you. And that, again, runs parallel to the broader narrative of the same-sex marriage movement, the marriage equality movement, where we had shifted away from sort of radical politics where initially after Stonewall, right, in the, in the 1970s and now 1980s, the gay liberation movement was actually about disrupting traditional notions of gender, traditional notions of marriage. But then with the marriage equality movement, we shifted away from that radicalism and said, hey, we want to participate in this. And, and in order to get it, we're going to prove to you, we're going to show to you we are just like you and that you are no different so that you can relate to us and grant us these rights. Let us in to this sort of holy grail of, of relationships, which is marriage. Then there was another one we didn't touch that was in there somewhere that gave us both messages, and that was on cable, Queer as Folk. Queer as Folk was radical uh, for its day, uh, and the reason it was radical was because it showed the lives of gay men fairly accurately in terms of how they view sex, how they view relationships, how they disrupt a lot of, again, gender norms, how they disrupt traditional notions of creating relationships, of maintaining relationships. The only issue with Queer as Folk is that at the time, you know, it was airing on Showtime, and it was very much a niche show. It was revolutionary in that it was at the beginning of sort of this move to for cable networks to produce their own programming like HBO and like Showtime. But it wasn't getting – you know, obviously the ratings because it was on these sort of paid uh, cable sh uh, networks, and then it was also very much of a niche uh, type of show. And so it wasn't getting the ratings that, you know, a lot of shows on network television like Modern Family or like Grey's Anatomy or like Desperate Housewives would get. So it was impactful in terms of its representation. It was impactful for its audience, for them to be able to relate to them, the, the, the gay folks who were watching it. But in terms of its broader effect on uh, the larger American society in terms of really exposing them to gay life, I would argue that it was a little bit less than just because of its lack of accessibility, which is so different today. As you said, you can binge watch things, right? Everything is online. We have such access to television and this really – or to TV shows, and this really shows us how – Different things have changed. Today, everyone would have access to that kind of show, but then they didn't. But Queer as Folk gave us both messages. There Absolutely. Was, there was did. one and character who wanted a wild and crazy sex life, and there was another character who longed for a relationship. Absolutely, and that's where it was really revolutionary. And, and I will add to that, it's not really something that we have seen since. Uh, and so it was, it was very uh, isolated uh, in terms of, of – uh, um, it's sort of it's sort of on a, on an island of its own, and we have yet to see uh, characters like that really come back to the fore. Where are we today? Where we are today—that is a great question. Uh, you know, in my uh, analysis uh, of of shows, I go back to uh, 2010 and 2011, and the reason I go back to that year is because. 2011 was the first year that the majority of the American public were in favor of same-sex marriage. And during that period of time, 
we were all sort of struggling with, do we participate in this institution? Do we want to participate in this institution? I opened up my book with my best friend, Katie, who is straight, asking me to literally be an officiant for her for her wedding, and I could sign the paperwork. I could literally marry them, sign their paperwork, but I myself could not be a groom. I was struggling with these issues as well. Do I want to participate in this historically exclusionary uh, institution? And so we were all struggling with this. There was broader movement in, in society. There was you know personal movement, and there were movement on television shows. And so I wanted to go back and look at that specific year, and what I found in my just sort of looking and just looking around was that the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation in their annual Where We Are on TV report for the year of 2010 and 2011 found that that year had the highest number of LGBTQ representations. And to your question, it wasn't just about numbers. It was really for the first time we were showing on mainstream television networks that had viewers of 10 million or more relationships. We were showing already formed relationships and families that gay, lesbian, queer, bi folks were participating in, and that was new. We had not shown them in those amounts at ever, really. It had not been historically possible. And so that's where we are, uh, and I think that's, that's where we were then, and I actually think that that's where we still are. We're still sort of in that uh, – we're seeing the tail end of those sorts of depictions, the just-like-us narrative. You think, though, we'll ever see in prime time a show, whether it be drama or comedy, that has two, a same-sex couple of either gender happily ever after? I think we have seen it. Uh, I think we see uh, in Modern Family. I think we, there's an example of that in Desperate Housewives, as you mentioned before. There are examples of that. And, you know, this is sort of what I get at at the book is that the depictions of, of gay men and lesbians in particular, they are now the carriers of that happily ever after. They are now the carriers of that nostalgia trap. I relate to a scene – uh, from Grey's Anatomy, where you have two uh, women characters, Callie in Arizona, one identifies as bisexual, one identifies as a lesbian, and at the end of the season that I uh, look at, they get married. And honestly, Peter, they have the best straight wedding I have ever seen, uh, and they do the straight wedding better than the straight folks. The scene is actually interlaced with uh, the main couple, Meredith and Derek, who are also getting married, and they go to the sort of the boring, drab, gray uh, courthouse, uh, and they don't even have rings, right? And so then you have Callie and Arizona who are walking down an aisle. They're in their frou-frou white dresses. Men are giving them away. They do the traditional vows. The whole thing is in pink. I mean, it looks like it's been hosed down with Pepto-Bismol. And it's they again, they're doing the big show straight wedding. And so what I argue in the book is that the gay and lesbian characters and the bi characters who are participating in this, they actually are performing an important nostalgic function for these audiences in that we see the 1950s family really now being um, in, in the, the carriers of that 1950s family are the gay and lesbian uh, relationships and families. And I'd feel really remiss if we didn't give a tip of the hat to Shonda Rhimes in her new series for the people. Mm-hmm. about lawyers and prosecutors. Mm-hmm. There's a couple, a federal prosecutor, female, and a female FBI agent who are getting hot and heavy. 
Yeah, and this is what's interesting about where we are today is that we've become so comfortable with seeing gay men and lesbians and by folks, uh, mostly by women, on television, uh, and that they, they almost become standard. It's it's sort of like uh, it's like you know a new car, like with power windows, and you know um, they they become standard on these television shows. They're expected. We expect that of of our diversity uh, on television, and so we've really become less of water cooler moments. Uh, we used to be the water cooler moment, and now we're just sort of the the I think the boring. Oh, we're just like us. Okay, we're just going to be in a relationship. And this is what I argue in the book is that you know they're not the depictions while they identify as gay or they identify as bi, they identify as lesbian, that identification is powerful, that representation of that identification is powerful, but what they're actually doing is not that radical. And uh, so that's where we are, I think, today in, in, in many of these shows. And I'd like to say thank you to Corey Albertson, author of A Perfect Union? Question mark, Television and the Winning of Same-Sex Marriage. She documents an important movement. Thank you, Corey Albertson. Thank you so much, Peter. In my pleasure. And we'll be right back after these messages. And it's WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. My next guest is Dr. Michael Sharanga, MD, psychiatrist. And he's a nationally, if not internationally known expert on post-traumatic stress disorder, particularly in children. And when you draw a line from Columbine to Sandy Hook to Parkland to now to Santa Fe, you begin to understand the need for such a treatment and such an approach to helping young people. Good morning, Dr. Sharanga. Thank you. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. How is post... Okay, first of all, what is post-traumatic stress disorder? It is technically a list of 20 different symptoms in the official criteria. Um, so it's a lot to keep track of, but an easy way maybe to think about it is they're divided into three types of different symptoms. One type we call the re-experiencing symptoms, things like nightmares, things like intrusive thoughts that keep barging into your mind that you don't want there. The second type we call numbing and avoidance symptoms. People will lose interest in things that they used to like to do or they will withdraw from their loved ones. And then the third type they call the increased arousal symptoms, like difficulty concentrating, difficulty sleeping, and exaggerated startle responses. Is it different in adults than it is in children? Not for the most part, no. The children can develop just about all the same symptoms as adults. There are some few exceptions when we get down to talking about very, very young children, though. Okay. So let's then take a look at some of the children who have been survivors of mass gun shootings. While this has been a fairly rare occasion, it's also happened far, far too often. What, what are we seeing in them? Well, the first thing is people ought to ask about what did the children actually experience because there's a difference between trauma that's life-threatening that can cause PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and stress that is not life-threatening that is very unlikely to lead to PTSD. So the trauma that we're talking about that can lead to PTSD has to be life-threatening. It's usually sudden unexpected moment of sheer panic for your life. So if you were a student at one of these schools, you saw the shooter or you saw a dead body or you saw someone get shot or you were hiding and were in fear for your life, then you are at risk for PTSD. If you were a student who was not 
close to the action at all, did not really fear for your life, or just saw it on television, it's unlikely that you would be at risk for PTSD. So those children, for example, in Santa Fe, I think it was Santa Fe, maybe it was Parkland, who were in that music room when the gunmen opened fire, they're the ones who are going to have the PSTD. PSTD. They're the ones who are at risk, definitely. And parents should be looking for any changes in their behavior that might signal PTSD. You should have a high suspicion. PTSD is one of the only psychiatric disorders that has such a sudden onset. One day you didn't have it, the next day you do have it. And uh, if they still are having symptoms after a month, then a month is a good landmark for it's time to start getting professional help and, and getting assessment. Okay. What kind of professional help? You need a psychiatrist? You need a psychologist? A social worker? Who? The vast majority of help is going to be from like licensed clinical social workers or licensed professional counselors. Psychotherapy is the first-line treatment. Psychiatrists who are MDs, they tend to do medications more than anything, although a lot of them do psychotherapy. So you just need to ask around. Finding good therapists is really difficult. I'll be the first one to admit that. So it's kind of a word of mouth, uh, trial and error. Ask your pediatrician. Uh, they know the people in the community. You want somebody who has treated trauma before, who uses what we call an evidence-based type of psychotherapy. That's usually cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT. That's the most tested. And parents need to ask some tough questions of therapists when they're finding help. Okay, but is there a role for medication then? You mentioned the psychiatrist's role. There, a, there can be a role. Uh, in severe cases, um, they can, medicine can be very helpful for uh, uh, anxiety in general. It can be helpful for sleep and nightmares. Uh, um, and there are two drugs that are approved by the FDA for PTSD. Um, they just don't seem quite as effective in the long run as the psychotherapy. What, what two children, both could have been in that music room. One gets PTSD, one doesn't. Is there a difference? Yeah, good question. Actually, most human beings are resilient. The research shows that after exposure to a life-threatening event, 70% of people are resilient, and they will not develop PTSD. It's just that this 30% or so who are vulnerable for some reason. And we have some clues about what's what makes them vulnerable. It's, it's likely genetic. It's things about whether their brain centers that process threat are overreactive or, over, or underreactive, uh, depending on the brain center function. And because they have that genetic risk, that's probably what makes them vulnerable. How much of it is parental reaction? Oh, you're, you're going to be fine. You go to school. We're going to get through this. As opposed to, oh, my baby, I'm going to keep you close. Well, that's a great topic. I devote a whole chap two chapters to, to parenting in my book um, because there is a lot of, I think, misinformation about parents. So our, our field of psychologists and psychiatrists, we have been just wretched about blaming parents for things that they don't cause. Like in the 1950s, we blamed parents for autism, and now we know that's genetic. In the 1960s, we blamed parents for schizophrenia called them refrigerator mothers, and now we know that's not true. It's, it's genetic. But that theory of blaming the mother just won't die, and now it's latched on to things like PTSD, and we want to blame parents for their children developing PTSD. But the research shows that it's, 
the parents are not to blame. Um, parents may not help their children get better uh, as much as they could if they're insensitive uh, to their children, but they, they, don't, they can't cause it. And you're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP. My guest this morning um, is an expert in post-traumatic stress disorder in children. My guest, Dr. Michael Sharenga. We'll be back in just a bit, doctor. Got to run a few commercials here or I'll have a case of PTSD when I get fired. We'll be back in just a bit. The WIP time, 733. We're back. It's WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Dr. Michael Sharenga, psychiatrist. His new book, They'll Never Be the Same, A Parent's Guide to Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder in Youth. Now, doctor, let's people think we're only talking about people who've been victims of mass shooting, kids and who've been in these schools that have been so horribly brutalized by mass shooters. We're talking about a lot more human behavior, aren't we? We're talking about things like... Sexual abuse, child abuse in general, um, gun. Tell me more about what we're talking about. Right. So people are used to thinking about PTSD in terms of soldiers coming back from war, but there's actually a wide variety of life-threatening things children can experience. Um, I mean, they, they, the studies have shown that by the age of 16, two-thirds of all youths have experienced at least one life-threatening event, and these would be things like physical abuse, sexual abuse, witnessing domestic violence, motor vehicle accidents, other types of injuries like burns or near drowning. For young children, things like dog attacks are life-threatening. There's then, of course, the, the annual natural disasters, man-made disasters, and then things like school shootings. How does insurance react to this diagnosis? Insurance? Uh, insurance covers it just fine. They, um, there's, a, there's a code for it, and accepted treatments for it, so it's, it's reimbursed as well as any other disorder. That's good. When you treat a child, do you also have to treat a parent? It definitely helps to include the parent because the parents need to understand what their children have been through, and that's a big part of why I wrote the book is try to help parents understand what their children are going through and help them do what the children need to do. Now, do, if a parent has PTSD themselves, does the parent need to be treated in order for the child to get better? And the answer pretty clear is no. Um, the child can get better even if the parent themselves don't get better. As long as the parent brings the child to the child's own psychotherapy and supports the child through that process, the children can get better. Does it show itself differently between men and women, boys and girls? There's not uh, a lot of research that shows big differences um, between them, um, there's overall tends to be a little higher rate of the disorder in women, and there's speculation about are women just genetically different than men, and that makes them more vulnerable, or is it because women experience different kinds of traumas like rape, which might cause PTSD at a higher level because it's so interpersonal and, and so violent compared to other types of trauma. How about racially? Is there a difference? No, not that I'm aware of. What brings strength to someone to help them get through it? I mean, obviously therapy does um, a good support system, does a religious faith, those kinds of things make a difference? 
they they might they might be you know kind of proxy indicators of a stronger resilient personality in general and uh, there's a phenomena more recently but it's been called post traumatic growth where um, people actually can kind of grow from their experience you know the old saying if it doesn't kill you it makes you stronger some people find a way to turn this horrible thing that happened to them into a positive for their life. Like, here's an example from the book of a, a teenage girl who was sexually assaulted, and she decided to try to turn that into something good, so she started a group for other teenage girls to make them aware of the possibility of dating violence and rape, and she used her experience to try to help other girls prevent what she went through. Is it usually recognized or is it under-recognized when it happens in children? That's one of the big messages of the book. It is vastly under-recognized. There have been two studies that show that even licensed clinicians are missing the diagnosis of PTSD 90% of the time. And there's several reasons for that. Um, one of that is the avoidance issue. Avoidance is actually one of the symptoms of PTSD. People do not want to bring this up spontaneously, and so they don't ask about it. And clinicians don't want to ask about it because it might upset their patients. A second reason is a lot of these PTSD symptoms are what we call internalized. They're thoughts and feelings that we can't observe from the outside, and so they're hard to detect. And then a third reason is, as I said earlier, there's 20 different symptoms of PTSD, and you only need six of them for the diagnosis, but they can be those 20 symptoms can be combined lots of different ways to get to those six symptoms that you need for the diagnosis. And one researcher actually counted the number of ways, and there's like 600 different ways those 20 symptoms can be combined. So it's, it's just complicated. I would imagine, though, it's harder to diagnose in boys and men than it is in girls because boys and men are supposed to be strong and not admit to these things. Right. Uh, they don't come to therapy as often. They're not willing to admit because of that avoidance issue. Uh, you know, the population that come to clinics is probably something like 70% females, 30% males, uh, exactly because of what you said. And so we need to get the message out to men and boys that this is common and there is good treatment out there for them if they would reach out for it. Gotta wonder, from what I know about sex offenders, how many sex offenders were cases of untreated post-traumatic stress disorder that eventually grew into sex offending? That makes you wonder. If I'm not an expert in sex offenders, but if, if that's a uh, part of their their profile that uh, they never got treated for that, and this is something that bothers them, and they're acting it out later in their lives, um, I wouldn't say, of course, that. PTSD causes people to be sex offenders. It's a lot more complicated than that, but um, it might be part of their profile. Certainly, it can push people in a direction or not in a direction. It yeah. all depends. But so much anger and so much feeling that's been pent up for so long has to come out somewhere. Right. All right. What else do we need to know about post-traumatic stress disorder in kids? Um, I think... That people need to know that there's really good treatment out there, and people wait too long to get it. There's a, one of the stories right at the beginning of the book is about a, a boy who's a teenager 
who had been in treatment for five years, but nobody had asked him about trauma. So he was getting um, treated for ADHD and oppositional defiant behavior, and he was acting out in school, and he'd been expelled from school. And then finally, uh, a different clinician recognized that he had witnessed violence and been physically abused as a child and detected his PTSD and got him the right kind of treatment. And that was what turned the corner for him. So uh, parents can do a lot of this assessment themselves. You know, the one of the messages I'm saying is uh, clinicians are not good at detecting it, and it's kind of up to parents to do that. And they can download free checklists and do assessment of their own children themselves. Usually clinicians are saying we don't want patients doing self-diagnosis, but what I'm saying is uh, for PTSD I want parents doing self-diagnosis because it's kind of up to them. They have to get in the game and, and detect this sooner. And is there a website where you can get those self-diagnosis questionnaires? Yeah. If you uh, do like a Google search uh, for scaring the lab, that's spelled S-C-H-E-E-R-I-N-G-A, scaring the lab, then one of my pages has free checklists that people can download. Uh, parents, there's one version for parents to fill out, another version for, for youth to fill out if they're old enough, and that can be the first step to seeing if they have enough symptoms for PTSD. What should the parent be willing to accept and expect from schools? Because kids are eventually going to go back to school. For um, supporting children with yes. uh, accommodations? Yes. yes. Yeah, they, they can have accommodations like other children have, like extra time to take tests, um, freedom for children to visit the school counselor and leave class when they're overwhelmed and have time to cool off and talk to somebody. Uh, that can qualify as a disability in, in uh, most school districts, just like um, something like ADHD, attention deficit, or other disabilities. If a parent only get, or even a professional, because I'm sure professionals can benefit from your book as well, what one thing do you want the reader to get? I want them to realize that for parents, it, 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 for parents the message is it's up to you. Um, clinicians are not trained as well as they need to be. They have resistance to using evidence-based therapies that exist, and parents need to be uh, proactive to, to get the right assessment and treatment for the kids. For professionals, I think they need to understand there's some uh, misinterpretations of data, some fallacies that get promoted, unfortunately, for political or personal reasons. One of those is about parenting that we talked about earlier, that parents should not be blamed for this. Another one that uh, I talk about in the book is this idea that stress damages the brain. That's the prevailing belief among professionals right now because of brain imaging studies that show differences in people's brains with PTSD. But the more modern research, when they're studying people's brains before they've experienced traumatic events, they see that these differences in people's brains were there before the trauma, and that's probably what makes them vulnerable to develop PTSD. It's not that trauma has damaged their brains. One more time, Dr. Shurango, your website? 
Scheringa Lab, spelled S-C-H-E-E-R-I-N-G-A. It says two different words. Just search on that, and it should bring you to it. Dr. Michael Scheringa, his new book, You'll Never Be the Same, A Parent's Guide to Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder, PTSD in Youth. And maybe you can learn something as an adult as well. So check it out. Thank you, doctor. Thank you very much. Appreciate my it. pleasure. And it's been another edition of WIP Sunday. It's going to be a humid in the 70s, which couldn't be too bad, but the humidity is going to be a killer, apparently. There's going to be rain off and on during the day. No matter where you go, take 94WIP with you. Always good conversation here on 94WIP. Stay tuned for Sports Talk with Sunny Hill. Always interesting and provocative discussion in the living room. Your opinions, Sonny's reactions, I know I'll be listening. Finally, nothing left to say, but stay dry and see you soon.